and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. So today I am joined with Linda Fitch, who is a world-renowned teacher, coach, and practicing shaman who has studied and worked with the medicine men and women of Peru for more than two decades. The former dean of the Four Winds Society Light Body School of Energy Medicine, she has trained thousands of students in journey and shamanic healing practices. Widely recognized for her groundbreaking workshops, trainings, and classes, both online and in person, she leads annual excursions to the high mountains and jungles of Peru. She also maintains an active personal healing practice working with clients around the globe. And Mike and I actually had the opportunity to meet Linda in person at the 2018 Afterlife Awareness conference in Orlando, Florida, and we're going to get a chance to see Linda again this year in 2019 in Salt Lake City, Utah. So Linda, welcome. Thank you so much, April. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate being invited. Yeah, you know, I had Mike and I both had the opportunity, um, you know, to sit in on your conference workshop. Uh, at the afterlife conference and both of us kind of walked out of there like, whoa, (laughs) we learned so many different things about shamanism and the sleep cycle and, um, you know, how we can really work so many different things out in our dreams. And I was thinking to myself today, this conversation that you and I are having couldn't have come at a better time because I am, um, I've been facilitating an eight week woman's wellness series using some shamanic practices from the West African shamanism tradition. And it has been like phenomenal and amazing. And as I'm teaching, I'm learning new things. And I have a ton of questions to ask you about some of the things that I've been experiencing um, in our rituals. So um, yeah, so I also know at the Afterlife Conference, you gave everyone these kits to create a grief altar. And so I thought it might be nice uh, to start our conversation off just kind of really getting into the shamanic practices. And um, I'd like to talk about why altars are really important, why we create them, and also how the grief altars can really help people. Absolutely. Beautiful question. And April, okay, I'm going to go back just a tiny bit in case there's listeners that aren't familiar with shamanism. Sure. But that's okay. So um, actually, it's so cool when we think about it that um, shamanism, the word, comes from Siberia. But that's just a word. Actually, the practice or methodology goes back to every continent in the world. And every culture has roots that go all the way back into shamanism. So um, like Buddha, before he became the Buddha, practiced Bampo, which is a shamanic practice. So most religions, including the altars we're talking about, have these threads that go way, way back. And because it's in so many different cultures, there's, there's just little different flavors. So as you were saying, the, you know, from West Africa, there's a little different flavor there. In Peru, there's a little different flavor. Um, Africa would be called a witch doctor, be called a medicine man or medicine woman if you're in North America. Um, So shaman is the word. um, And it's so cool. It's actually a practice where you learn how to sit directly with consciousness or sit with spirit. 
So, and um, there's certain things that are similar, certain landscapes that are similar in all the cultures. And part of those is exactly what you're talking about, that we work and you work with ritual and ceremony, that you go between different realms and that um, it's an evolving, and of course it's of service. So I love that you're doing this group with these women about healing. Yeah, it, it's been phenomenal. I mean, I've always been more of the, the student, you know, and taking the classes myself. And I had a calling this year to begin to facilitate it. And and being the facilitator is a, a little bit of a different experience. And but it's been so powerful to see the healing that is happening with these these nine women that I have. And and a part of the healing, I have also noticed um, it's it's coming with some of the rituals that we're doing, but the other healing that's happening is being in community and being yes. like a part of this tribe. Like there is something in that whole aspect that provides a healing all in itself. Yes. And you know, and that actually takes us to the grief. There's so much, I love shamanism. My, my background goes back and I took Silva method clear back when I was 18 years old and a strong background in NLP. I own an NLP business and then went into learning about shamanism as we were modeling healers. And that what I love about shamanism, it works. And it is community. And community is part of that grief piece. So the shaman, now we're going to go right to the grief. Sorry, it took me a little while. <laughs> but the, um, the shaman has been traditionally within the community, what's been called, and this is um, with the afterlife, they're the psychopomp. They're the ones that help the person walk across. They're the death doula. Um, some of the newer words considered around that. It, you know, they're the guide. They're the guide as they help someone that goes across with it. And actually all those things that, you know, the scientists that I love the research, my have a very strong science background and worked for the government, um, you know, the near NDEs, the ADCs, the OBEs, the STEs, all the acronyms that are used, those near death, after death, out of body, spiritual transformation. This is what shamans have been doing for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So it's so cool that they're finally putting acronyms to it. But all of our listeners should know that this has been practiced for a long time. So and in community. So in service as part of that assisting others in cross crossing, they also then in the community, the shaman works with grief. So and what I really love about the shamanic practices is they have tools like it's been tested already you know it's had thousands of years of beta testing that <laughs> the bugs are worked out and it's evolving so it's not like a religion where you take where you know there's a certain way of doing it shamanism is actually evolving and things are getting faster and quicker and it doesn't take as long for people to journey or to get the information or get the guidance this is so cool so the grief altars that we you want me to go there yes okay? yeah yeah that'd be great so the grief altars um, that we were working with in the Afterlife Awareness Conference, and I'm so glad to be able to see you guys there this year. And of course, recommend anybody listening, go check it out. Um, I know that you guys have their products and you carry the, the videos and the audios. Um, so in that, and what it is, is it's actually processes what happens with grief. And we think that grief is when somebody dies. It isn't. 
I mean, it can, it does happen there, but actually we go through every time we have a big change in our life and that could be a positive change that we want a new baby. All of a sudden now we're going to have a new baby or it could be a negative change that we're fired or let go of from a job. So anytime there's a change, then actually what happens, there's always a loss. It's kind of like there's a beginning and an ending. So we have this new beginning that's going to happen, the new baby, but there's a loss. So anybody that's had kids know that loss is uh, sleep, <laughs> loss of freedom, loss of your identity. There's so many losses. If we don't work through that loss, that's where that unfinished business comes from. These things that haunt us, that hold us our whole life. So every time there's a loss, we either work through it or we don't. And there's associated grief. And what starts to happen is then we're taught that there's certain ways that's okay to grieve based on when we were little kids and our experience of noticing, you know, in our Western world, we are just so not good at grief, you know, and some, and it's not about that. It's a big grief. This big event happened and that's a big grief and this little event happened. And that's a little grief. You forgot, your parents forgot to pick you up from school one day, or you got separated or something gets coded in. It's not that it's little or big. It's that there's a loss and a grief there. And, you know, we're told as little kids, go in your room and cry. Aren't you done with that yet? So um, in our Western world, we're really not good at that grief. So what I love about the shamanic practices is uh, there's actually ways to work the grief. Because what starts to happen is we just accumulate this bag, if you want to look at it that way, of heavy grief heavy energy that we just kind of trudge along with us. And sometimes we have, because grief shows up in so many different ways. It could be a depression or anger. And I know that you have a background in that place of therapy. Sometimes what people are walking in with actually goes and is rooted back, as you know, in those old, old things that have never had a chance to be worked out. And there's grief around that. But it gets so big, we don't want to open that door. <laughs> it feels like we'll get flooded. We'll get overrun with whatever is in there. So this practice that I love, and it has been significant for me in working with grief altars. And it actually comes from the Western Africa tradition also. It's from the Dhaka tradition. Yep, that's the tradition that I've been working in uh, with this wellness series that I'm doing. Yep. Yeah, nice. So within it, and if you think about a lot of our indigenous cultures, they deal with death all the time. And it we it isn't shuttled off to the hospital. So um, it very is very present. You know, if someone dies, then um, you're, you know, you needed them to be out in the field to help with the harvest. So those places of anger, but all of that comes up and they have a process of working with it with altars. And this can be put, everybody can do this at home. So it includes a black cloth, a dark blue or black bowl. And I used to use because they're easier to find. And then you put salt and water in it, in the bowl. And then a candle or two candles. And then you could put things that represent, you know, maybe there's a picture of you and your sister or someone that's crossed or whatever kind of that you're grieving. 
and then you light the candles. So when the grief altar, when the candles are lit, it's like the grief altar is open and that's our time to grieve. And everybody grieves differently. So it doesn't mean you're sobbing and crying. It means that you may be sitting at peace. You may be swearing, you may be, but it just, it continues to work. And then when you're done, you blow out the candles and the grief altar is closed. Um, so the first time I was using a grief altar and I was in community, there's such power to community and grief that that community piece, you know, in our Western world, we don't recognize how important that community is when someone's grieving. What happens is we haven't worked through our own grief. And so because of that, we have a hard time holding space for somebody else that can just cry, not to try to fix them, not to try to make them better, but just to let them go through their grief experience. So the altar, the first time I did it, I was, um, I was grieving and actually I was crying. I had something going on and I could feel the grief, feel the grief, feel the grief. I know I'm really crying and it ended just like that. I mean, to the place, April, I looked over my shoulder <laughs> to see where it went. <laughs> so it is so, so powerful. Yeah. And, um, I have one question about your grief altar, what you do. And then I'd like to share my experience the first time I ever did this too, because it was wild. And like you said, it was all of a sudden like gone. Um, but why the salt water? What is it that mixing salt with water, how does that begin to draw the sadness and the grief out? Why are those two things used together on this altar? Um, it's, it's the same. So water helps move things. So anybody that's experienced a lot of grief, if they can go walk by the ocean, go walk by a river, a moving, moving water helps move things. They can um, add a prayer to the water. So movement. So water helps. And then the other is the salt draws out. So uh, another practice with grief is you can do sea salt baths where you actually add sea salt into your bathtub and it'll pull that heavy energy off your energy field that's around you. Mm -hmm. So what that combination of the salt and the water does with your intention, with the candles, with the dark cloth, with the altar, it'll pull it out of your body. And then there's more involved if you're in community, you can actually make um, grief bundles um, that hold your grief. Those can go on the altar. Um, there can be, if you're in community, songs. It could be where you where you hold sacred space around the other person so that the grief can flow and they can be present. Um, so it's really about it's that, that place of allowing that safety and that sacredness for the person to let go. Yeah, and the other thing that I was thinking too is, you know, I wonder what what I've experienced in ritual space is that there's so many metaphors and symbols and signs for interpretation. You know, it's nothing having to do with the intellect at all. But also, when I think of the salt in the water, our tears are are salty as well. Yeah. You know, so literally, kind of like drawing the tears out too um, as a metaphor. I was just thinking of that as you were saying that. Um, yeah, so the first time I ever had a, uh, did a grief altar was um, with, I was in my early 20s at the time and working with my first energy healer, and her name's Jeanette Defoe, and she had worked with Maladoma Somme, and she did this grief um, 
ritual and, you know, invited a bunch of other people over and she said, I really think you need this. And I'm like, okay, I had no idea what it was about, but I just wanted to learn everything. And I get there and it was one of my first experiences in like shamanism practices and ritual space. And I was a little freaked out and we're creating this altar and we're putting these ancestors on here. And, you know, and then we're going to cry. I was like, what? I don't, I barely cry in front of people at this point. You know, I wasn't even totally connected with my emotional tears. And I found it crazy because I was thinking, there's no way I'm going to be able to cry. I I don't know any of these people. How is this going to happen? And then one by one, whenever you felt called to approach the altar, you would just sit there and you would, you know, be with with your ancestors and be with uh, the grief bundle, whatever you felt like you needed to grieve. And it was amazing because all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it felt as if that altar really was pulling these emotions and tears up and memories and then just letting them go. And then all of a sudden I would stop crying and I would go back and then another person would come up. And it was so interesting to be a part of, because like you said, I, I had never been experienced to anything like that in the Western culture, nonetheless in my family or hearing about anything like this in our community. Well, and as that, you hear somebody else, that's so beautiful. As you hear somebody else, just as you're saying, um, grieving that also pulls up those deeper spots within us. You know, it's like where where we can grieve on a global level. You know, for the loss of a species, for um, those much more global kind of grief things. Yeah, we're just yeah. not talking about grief. You know, <laughs> um, I had another experience to share with the that was just a great story of how people can use a grief altar. And you know what? I have April two. If it um, I sent you a URL, and if people want to click on that, they can actually get um, a video showing how you make a grief altar, and then it has the step-by-steps. Great. So yeah, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Sure, definitely. Yeah, so I had a um, client that I was working with, and she wanted to sell her home, sell her business. It was really close to her home. And her husband was um, one of those individuals that had been in Vietnam, where he was the only one that came back out of his platoon. And there was so much sadness. And she goes, Linda, he just can't work on this. It was just too big. It was way, way too big. But what was happening, they'd had their home on the market for a long time and or for a while. And um, people would walk in and they'd walk right out. And as I was in through the session in the home, there was so much sadness. You know, the sadness just permeated the home. Now, she can't do none of us can do anybody else's work. We can only do our work, but it's her home. So she set up a grief altar in the home, in the living room, in the dining room, wherever it was, just to help pull this sadness out of the house. And then I hear from her three or six months later, she sends me an email. She goes, Linda, the household, we've moved to Colorado. We have a horse ranch. (laughs) It was just like everything as that sadness left, then it was able to transform and then they could move on with their dreams. Wow. I love that story. You know, and sometimes too, I think, um, maybe our intellect is kind of thinking, well, how could really this, you know, the simple cloth and this bowl and two candles really do much of anything, right? It's like, if you're looking at it very much from a Western mind and you really don't have a whole lot of experience in some of this stuff, it almost seems like it can't, it can't be that simple or that easy or something so small can have such power, but these altars really, really do. 
They're amazing. And, you know, I think that's one of the things I love about shamanism. And again, I do have a really strong background in science. I love physics. I love strength theory. I love teaching classes about time and syntropy and entropy. So I have a deep, and I, I love people that really love the research too. I appreciate, um, I was listening to your other, um, one of your podcasts on the soul phone. It's like, is that cool or what? Yeah. yeah. Shamans have been doing this for a long, long time. Um, and so in that place with it, what I love about shamanism is it's simple. You know, it comes from a long, besides being tested and it works. Um, is it comes from farmers, it comes from weavers, you know, they're simple practices, but they have, when you add that power and intention, and then really when you open those veils and you sit with spirit, then this is where the magic happens. Yeah. And can you explain a little bit more, um, maybe go a little bit more in detail too, about what is actually happening as, you know, we're moving into this ritual space, because I've heard you talk a lot about too, about how dream, um, shamans are able to dream, right. Or we're moving into kind of this dream space, but waking up inside of a, of a dream that we're having. And I find that when you're in ritual space, Uh, it it almost feels like there's no time involved. Uh, There's so much of a presence there, yet it does feel very dreamlike. And there's a lot of stuff that is happening. Um, And I was just wondering if you can kind of explain that a little bit more of what is actually happening once a ritual begins and starts in that whole process. Absolutely. Thanks for the question. Um, It, Part of what happens, if we go, let's do just a tiny bit of science first. Part of what happens in that space is the brain waves change. So shamans have used drums because drums will, that, that beat, as you know, with that binaural beat and the work that you've done, it changes the brain waves. So it allows this other kind of space that happens. Now, I, one way to look at it, and so that's the science part about it. one way in that space where it's so cool and it so dovetails with death and with the afterlife work, that's the same space that is created when someone has a near-death experience. There's no time. You know, time goes away. That um, And there is this sense of something that's so much greater. And the same thing with lucid dreaming. It dovetails with dreaming. So in that same place of lucid dreaming, then when the time goes away and you have a chance to sit with God, to sit with spirit. So uh, metaphorically, since if we talked about it that way, what ceremony and ritual does, and I've heard ceremony talked about that uh, ceremony is where it's more free flowing. There aren't rules around it versus they're, they're the same space that you want to create, um, and then ritual is something that's done in a certain way again and again and again. So in the church where we take the host and it is the body of um, Jesus. So that's, but sometimes what happens is we, in ritual, we lose the space that's supposed to be there. So when we go way, way, way upstream, metaphorically, and we're this river of life, when we can go way upstream, And this is where the shaman learns to work, to go way upstream in this kind of space. Then as you do something, whether it's ritual or you do ceremony, you create an altar. 
you add blessings, um, you do a fire ceremony. So when you step into that ceremony space, this it's just thought of as way, way, way upstream. That in trying, instead of trying to change our lives way downstream, where it's um, where there's fear and anger and the emotions and the mind and all those things. What we want to do is we want to go way upstream where there is no time before time was created, where there is this timelessness where that happens in that space, then you can reach into that river of life. That's just a little tiny Creek and you can actually put your finger in like a child and you can change the direction that then changes everything downstream. And can you also explain, too, um, I know when you were doing a meditation at the conference, kind of brought us through this guided meditation of a tree and moving down into the roots, and we started to go, like, down into the underworld. And, uh, you know, I've read other things, too, where sometimes maybe in um, Christianity we may be looking up, right, going up to the sky or receiving energy from the heavens, from the skies, and bringing it down. But in some shamanism practices, maybe it's all, um, that we're really really connecting from underneath us, my understanding from one tradition is because, you know, we bury our ancestors, right? So the ancestors are there, they're in the ground, we're kind of bringing them up to connect with us. But I was also wondering if you could clarify for me a little bit more about, you know, why sometimes in guided imagery, um, things that, that I've seen you do too, that we start to go down into the earth. Beautiful. Thank you. This is one of the things that is that same landscape between all the different continents and all the different cultures. So for a shaman, that landscape is that there is a lower world, sometimes called the underworld, that we have this middle world, that's ego, conscious, conscious reality. And then we have an upper world. In our Western teaching, it's mostly, and even some of the Eastern teachings, that upper world is where we really want to become familiar with. I mean, I did TM meditation, you know, that we want to be able to go act. So here's a quick story about it. So I had a, a client once that was on the phone and this is his story. He said, you know, Linda, I have written, and he saying, I've written this, these several meditation books, they're New York times bestsellers, um, on and on. And I was like, great, that's awesome. And he goes, but I want to buy a home and I cannot even afford a down payment on a home. <laughs> I'm broke. And so in journeying in to do the session with him, he had this beam of light that was kind of like the Star Trek beam, beam me up, Scotty. You know, it was like this huge beam of light that went up. It's just amazing. This beam of light. But what he didn't have is there wasn't anything that went down. There was no connection to the earth. So from the shaman's perspective and shamanic work, we always, yes, up. Yes, yes, you want to have that. This is not an either or. You, yes, you want up. But if you don't have, you want the tree up. You want the trunk. You want the branches. You want the beautiful flowers, whatever the fruit is that you can easily pick off the abundance. But if you don't have a root system, if it isn't grounded, then the tree just falls over. So we have to also, it's not an either or, you also have to have this deep grounding into the earth because it's the earth that gives us abundance. So if I have students that say if they have any financial abundance issues, go down. Because it's the earth is the one that gives us nourishment, that gives us the fruit, that, you know, that provides for us. Anybody that's not put their hands in the garden, you know, it's those seeds that we plant 
that then is what's produced. So we want to nourish the soil because sometimes people, their soil of their life is, um, you know, it isn't thick, it isn't prosperous, it isn't fertilized. So for a shamanic perspective, we go down and there's helpers in each of these realms. There's guides, there's assistants. So in the lower world, many of our assistants, and this is some, some cultures and many of the indigenous societies for their afterlife, it depends on what their creation myth is. Yes, a lot of them believe that we bury our, that that's where the essence of our ancestors go. Um, and in some shamanic traditions, we it's just that the, the physical body goes back into the earth. But it's really the essence of who we are that goes to the stars. Right. So we go down into the earth and typically we begin learning how to journey. So that's what shamans do. They learn how to go between these different realms of service. That's the other part. And there's so many people I would pass on to that are listening that sometimes the word shaman, they think, oh, I can't do that, or that's something different. And it really is exactly this whole spiritual practice that people have right now, that they want to sit with God. So we journey down into the earth, because many times it's easier, we're more successful to connect with a guide, to connect with a power animal, and to get really rooted. And then we also learn how to journey up, to that upper world. And many times when someone crosses or dies, when the shaman walks with them over to the other side, that death doula, the psychopomp, then it is also then up to the upper world where they're taken over. And you actually see those other individuals, family members, loved ones, you can hear their voices, you can connect with them, come in and they'll help the person cross over. Well, thank you for that story. And I started laughing a little bit in the beginning when you were saying he wanted to buy a house but didn't have the money for it because I'm in that same exact spot. I'm going to see a house on Sunday and I'm like, I might put a bid in, but I don't know how I'm going to collect all the closing costs because I don't think I have all of that. So thanks. That's helpful. It makes me think, okay, maybe I have to get a little more rooted and, you know, bring my intentions a little more down into the earth to be able to call upon and bring upon more of that abundance. And that's perfect. And that's what you want to do is April, go down and you know how to journey down in. So um, whether you follow binaural beats or whatever you do, you know, you go down into the earth and then you call on assistance. So it could be that you call on a power animal to help. It could be that in that space of the earth, it could be the mother earth herself comes out and says, ah, let me help you get out of the way, girl. Go put your bid in. Get out of the way. <laughs> you know, step back. <laughs> let us handle it. You set your intention. So it's that low, it's that mother earth that then will hold us and gives us that abundance. Yeah. And speaking of like asking for assistance, that was another thing that I had this aha moment, you know, in your workshop at the afterlife conference, when you were talking about how you can be so much more uh, productive, it's a quicker way to reach enlightenment. If you begin to start working out your stuff in your dreams and asking for that help in your dreams, setting that intention when we are actually sleeping and in that dream state to begin to work on things um, and how much more productive we are when we do that. Absolutely. And you know, it's something that everybody can do and whether somebody feels like they remember their dreams or not, it's first learning that process about um, how do you do that? Cause you know, it's just steps and skills they want. And that time is that time where our ego is less engaged. 
So here's the really interesting part, and I'm just going to read this in. So um, what happens when we go into dream time, if we have a lot of unfinished business, like stuff that we haven't, like limiting beliefs and um, personal work that we still need to do, then sometimes that'll show up in our dream time. So it's really important any, that you continue to do your clearing and cleaning and then set your intention when you go into dream time. And your dream time can be like if you have a, if you're always angry about something or there is even some grief you can't work through, you can set your intention in dream time to clear. And that's then what will happen as you drop into that deep space of, of theta, lower alpha, upper, upper theta. Um, it'll actually clear those things. So you can ask for healing. You can ask for wisdom, guidance. Um, usually I'll say you don't want to, if, if you know you're in a bad situation, let's say there's something happening at work and it's, it's not really nice. I usually don't ask or encourage anybody to ask for more information about that bad situation because then it, it's actually, it equals a nightmare. And that's many times what will happen. You have a nightmare. It's just showing you what the situation is. But if somebody really doesn't know that, and when they're kind of caught in that, then they can ask information. So as you go into the dream time tonight, you can ask, what else do you need to know or do that would be helpful for you to be able to get this house? That is exactly what I'm going to do. <laughs> and I'm actually excited now. I mean, it's only 11 o'clock in the morning, but I'm like, all right, let's go night. Let's show up. You know, I'm ready. I'm ready tonight to go to bed already. <laughs> you can even do it during nap time. Right. So a lot of research that shows that yeah, in our sleep cycle, so that very first sleep cycle we go through is that one that we really, really need in order to get that deep sleep to cleanse out the brain, to um, do all the healing work that happens in the body. So research has shown that people that do napping, actually what they'll have is they're able to work through that. So then as they step into their sleep, they've actually then they're able to use more of that sleep time, um, not in that first cycle where it's that deep, deep clearing, but they're able to use the sleep time in that more creative where they're lucid dreaming, sit with God, get their answers. So yeah, you can take a 20 minute, 20 minute snooze, set your intention, Mm-hmm. There you go. Also. <laughs> now, let me ask you this. Is there a difference between taking that nap or going to sleep uh, versus being in an altered state? Because, you know, being um, doing a lot of energy work and healing work on people and, you know, my own meditation practice, I find that I am kind of in between worlds a lot every day, you know, I kind of can go in and out of those altered states very quickly. Um, so can people actually do it without having to take a nap or going to sleep? Like if I just kind of dropped into that state where I know to go and begin to set my intention about this and allow the imagination and that connection and speaking with my guides, can that happen without me actually taking a nap? Oh, absolutely. The, for some people as they're learning, those naps are a good way or starting to work with dream time. But as you become familiar with, and exactly as you're saying, when you have skills and being able to work with those alternate spaces, those um, different brain waves that are happening, you can just drop right down in, then just go directly. You get your allies. That, so that's what the shaman learns to do. You know, not to... I, Sometimes I'll have students that say, oh, I have my shamanic practice and I have my life. 
And as you know, as you begin to work and work and you develop, there's no difference. Right. You, you can drop in while you're doing the dishes. You can drop in when you're, and that's what we want to do. You can drop in for when you're taking the dog for a walk. You can drop in in silence and get your information in 10 seconds. That it doesn't have to be, and I actually encourage people, if they feel like there's a process that they have to do for meditation, like it needs to be quiet, it needs to be still, you're missing the point. <laughs> you know, we put an equal sign, I have to be still equals I can meditate. It's like, you to take away the, the equal sign, because we want to learn to have that stillness, get that information, get that wisdom, when everything's going around, you know, when all hell's breaking loose around us, we want to be able to still, you have an internal stillness and ability to access your guides, information, wisdom. Those veils are totally open and available all the time. We just need to stay awake for that. Yes. And, and it really does. Like as you begin to move more in that space, you can really see and appreciate and understand, um, you know, in the indigenous cultures, how they don't see that necessarily separate at all. You know, it's just like the ancestors are there. It is a part of that. There's open communication at all times. And um, yeah, and I, I'm learning that throughout the years that that's happening as well. And I, I just wanted to share with the audience just one really cool thing that you also pointed out in your um, presentation at the Afterlife Conference was, um, a, it was a little bit of a statistic where you said, on average, we spend eight years of our lives um, dreaming. Absolutely. And if you think about it, they, those are almost wasted years. It's like we're watching television or cartoons or, you know, we're just not present. And that it is absolutely possible to learn how to be and use those eight years. Some you know, when the original lucid dreamers, they'd be like, great, go meet with somebody that you think is really cute or whatever it would be. And really from the Tibetans, from the cultures, these indigenous cultures that have worked with dream time for so long in the dream yoga, it's like, no, you know, go sit with God, you know, use your time for your wisdom, go sit with Kuan Yin, uh, go sit with Jesus, go sit and get your wisdom and be with and when we know how to do that, when we're fully awake in our dream time called lucid dreaming, well, so we're aware you're asking for your information, you're, you're being there, you're doing your healing work. And the other cool thing statistic with it is, um, whatever you do in your dream time is nine times more effective. So people that have a net, a meditation practice or a healing practice, you know, we want to weave it into our dream time because it's so it's it's quicker <laughs> you know, right. it's so much quicker. it's like there's your 10 times you know there's your so to do that we want to and then be able to then do that gentle step over when death comes you're familiar with that that space you know you're from you have a habit um that's what meditation is is that we develop a habit of stillness so then you just have this next space you step over we weave it over to death then it, and that's what the dream yogis talk about that the, we're really here living to learn how to die. So then how do we, which includes the lucid dreaming, which includes shamanic work, then how do we just do that next step over um, when we don't have our mind that is like, oh, now we're just in another kind of reality. 
Yeah, and that's that's making me want to turn a little bit more in the direction of another thing that I heard you say during your presentation where, you know, we have so much pressure uh, to have this structured sleep, I think you called it, and you said, you know, the structured sleep of trying to get these seven to eight hours really isn't isn't of our natural state because many people will talk about waking up at the witching hour or between two and four o'clock in the morning. And it's such a phenomenon all across the world, you know, that's happening. Um, yet you were talking a lot about how it's really not natural for us to, uh, get all of those hours of sleep that we should be waking up at these times. That was one of the most helpful things when I learned that thing, I learned that piece um, because we have so much around, you know, where we look at the clock and go, oh my gosh, I'm awake. I didn't get my eight hours and now I'm going to have a miserable day. You heard the equal sign, you know, not necessarily equals this, or we'll start to worry that we're not getting enough sleep. And then that puts us in that cycle. And all of a sudden we are awake. So all the research that's done, and it makes sense, indigenous cultures, that there's a First sleep, that's where you get that at least four hours is ideally. If it's under four hours, there's on a continual basis, there's detrimental things that start to happen to the body and cortisol and hormones get released. Um, so, and that's where our cleaning, our healing happens, the clearing out of the brain. So typically when you first go to sleep, you just want to put your head down and say, ah, let me sleep deep. Let me sleep deep. Let me just surrender to sleep. And then after that, when we're going into a new sleep cycle, what will happen is we come up where we're kind of in this limbo space. It's a deep meditation space. And it is exactly that. It's, you know, where meditators throughout time have gotten up at that three in the morning to connect with God. So at that time, then this is, uh, you know, or where you put firewood on the stove or you nurse the baby or um, lots of famous authors have, you know, kept a journal where they start to write in those middle hours. Uh, I heard a beautiful singer the other day that talked about that um, and has a song about that. We want to remember what comes through in those three o'clock in the morning. So these times then, this is this time to sit with God, you know, to set your intention. Now I want information about this, or now I want healing, or now let me go sit with God. Let me go sit with Kuan Yin. So in this space, this meditative space, then you can set your intention and then drop back down in. And this sleep cycle is much lighter. It doesn't go all the way down into the Delta. It comes more up for those who are familiar with the brain waves up into theta and alpha where you have those images and rapid eye movement and where the dreams happen. And then we just want to remember those dreams because when you've asked for the information, then we want to remember the dreams. So when that three o'clock, when you look over, you look at your watch or whatever, you're like, oh gosh, it's two or it's three, whatever time that you normally wake up, that's the time you go, yoo-hoo, yay. <laughs> I'm so excited. Great. Now let me set my intention, you know, and and part of that intention can just be, let me go back down into another sleep. You know, I don't want to remember anything. It doesn't, doesn't mean that you have to be more awake. It means that you can actually still set intention for the body. 
Yes. And, you know, I've been practicing uh, more of that this year and getting excited for those moments when I'm waking up. And uh, that happened to me a couple of weeks ago. It was uh, a Wednesday night moving into Thursday, which is when I was meeting with these women. And I felt like the ancestors waking me up and they're giving me all of these pictures and letting me know how to create the space and what needs to go where. And I just said, okay, pop out of bed. I, I got out of bed, ran over to my couch. I grabbed my journal and I just started drawing and I just started taking in all the information that I was hearing and to prepare for, you know, that, that night's ceremony. And then I just closed it and I went back to bed and it was like amazed. It was so cool and amazing. Like you were talking about that inspiration that comes. And, um, if you, if, if you're willing to like stay awake to listen, there's like many messages in that space and time. That's beautiful. Yeah. And you can put the journal by your bed and, and so that anybody that the audience is listening to, you know, we have total control of it so that anybody, it's not like that. I used to, so as an example, I used to get at my dream time, I'd get messages about my clients that I was having the next day or, and I finally went, you know, I don't want to be woken up with this. This is not what I want. I'll deal with my client tomorrow. You know, I'll get, give me the information when I step into the session so that I have it there. So now occasionally I'll get information and if I get information, I listen to it because I've made this agreement with spirit that I know if that information is coming in in dream time, that there's some reason I wouldn't listen to it the next day or would not be available for it or not hear it or, you know, that it would be hidden. So I really pay attention to it. Um, I remember I was doing some speaking of that. I had a um, and this is how so you have to know your dreams. So that's the first step that we get to know our dreams. I had uh, one of the things the shaman works with is people, they have work that they can do to help clear and assist other people, people when they die and crossing over. So I had one of my uh, good high school girlfriends um, died and it came from a very, very traditional religious family. So her sister had, had cancer and the family didn't even, wouldn't even let her have acupuncture. It was that closed. So I did not offer anything. I didn't do anything, even though this is part of my skill. So I'm laying there. It was that three o'clock in the morning and I had a dream that, and her sister, uh, my girlfriend's sister had died also. So they were twins and I see them walking towards me in the dream and they pass me and um, my girlfriend looks at me, turns, looks me in the eye and she says, Linda, help me. And I went, great. I know my dreams. I know that that is a request from her to do what I know how to do. So then the next morning when I got up, I, in my mind's eye, laid her out. And then there's a process. And it's the same thing you can do for somebody when they're crossing. And it's a, that anybody can do it. So you don't have to be a shaman to do it. Um, where you help them release that unfinished business, that heavy energy that keeps us from flying, that keeps us from that spirit flight, that keeps us from crossing all the way over. And so I laid her out in my mind's eye and I released that heavy energy. And she and her twin had always had a rough relationship. It had never been a, um, a, a very loving relationship. So it's just releasing all of that heavy energy and then helping her cross and going with her, helping her cross all the way home. Wow, beautiful. details between death to dream time to ceremony time um, and this connection to the earth and the heavens that is that 
that and being of service, like what you're doing, April, with your women's group to be of service. You know, that's this, um, that's the landscape of the shaman. Yeah. Now I know that you are, like we talked about earlier, you're going to be joining us in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, and you're going to be one of the presenters there. And, uh, you know, for people who are listening, if you can't get out to Utah in June, um, we'll have some information on our website. You can also go to afterlifeconference.com to find out more information about it. But if you can't attend in person, we will be doing the live stream. But uh, what are you going to be talking about this year? So one of the uh, classes is going to be on individuals can journey and go get a power animal. So I'm going to be talking about power animals. Like what's the whole mythology behind them? Um, how do you use them? How do you work with them? And then we're going to go on journey. So, and uh, you have a chance to get one or two power animals. We're going to really work with that whole concept of allies and how you develop that. And then I get to work with Austin Wells. And one of the things that the, that's really important that we learn how to do is to step aside from our ego and of course recognize that that's still there, but how do we see or vision divine divine is actually as the divination comes from how do we sit with the divine where we can get information to assist another person or to assist ourselves. So we'll be working with the tools of divination and seeing and Austin and I are going to do that together. Oh, fun, fun. And uh, you guys also um, facilitated along with Terry, the closing ceremonies, which was just beautiful. Um, you know, the, you guys created the altar. It was the day of the dead uh, that you guys were, um, I think it fell on that day or something like that. Um, you know, and you guys are a part of also, having that space for all of the attendees who participate to have that closing ceremony, that ritual, that ceremony space. Yeah. And, and that's the same thing, you know, as you do, as you know, in doing ceremony with your women, it's that place of ceremony um, that we want to, that's where we want to depart at. That's where we want to be able to hold it way upstream, you know, not at the literal, but really, really way, way upstream with it. Yeah. You know, well, I was just, I was just going to say about that too. It's, it's not easy being a camera person and being oh. a part of that and crying all at the same time, because I was just, I could feel it all. And, you know, I've, I've got the one camera, I have like this job that I'm supposed to be doing and I'm like just feeling so much emotion through it. I was like, Oh gosh, am I going to be able to hold this camera steady? Cause I just was like so immersed in it. You can't not be when you're in that room. Yeah. And it's amazing. All the allies and the loved ones that come in that are part of that. Yeah. yeah. So beautiful. Well, um, Linda, can you also let people know where they can find more information about you? I know you do classes, you do expeditions, you do private sessions. Um, I'm sure there's going to be many listeners that are, if they haven't heard of you before, they are going to want to check out all that you have to offer. Yeah. So my website is Linda L fitch.com. My middle name's Lee. So there's another Linda Fitch. So, um, it's a beautiful photographer. So it's lindalfitch.com. And um, I take three trips to Peru every year. I'm so, and the, each of these trips is, you know, like one of those sweet spots where you wouldn't change an iota. So one is to the jungle where we work with the vine of the dead. And then uh, I worked with a Shipibo shaman. I, and then another is to the high mountains of Peru where we do initiations from the, from the Kero, from the elders the shamans that are there. And then I go to Northern Peru and I work with a shaman that works with the plant medicine, um, of Wachuma. 
and she does we I mean like we do those really cool things like clearing with guinea pigs clearing with candles clearing with eggs so it really and there's not a lot of people that can do that kind of clearing work and then I offer classes one-on-one -on -one, and then I offer online and I have a new online that's coming up April that people might be interested in it's called the shaman's tools for death and dying mastering the art of holding on and letting go so it, I'm really excited about it and we're going to talk about a lot of those kind of things around death and how do we work you know because death is this the shaman always has death as an ally so how do we because it keeps us honest you know it keeps us really on what's really important in life so we'll work with that and then how can you help other people Awesome. Well, I'm so excited to see you again, and I hope I get to be one of the people that's filming uh, your talk so I can learn a little bit more, and I might uh, tell Mike, I'm in, I'm in that room, so wherever <laughs> Linda is, I am. Um, but thank you so much. I know we, we were trying to get you on last year before the yeah. conference, and I know you're you're very, very busy, so I'm so glad that we got a chance to at least talk to you, um, you know, before the next conference coming up so people can learn a little bit more about who you are, the work that you're doing what you're bringing to the afterlife conference and you know you're just your knowledge and everything that you shared is just so amazing so thank you so much for being a guest on our show today and thank you april and mike for all that you guys do the number of people and who you bring into the world and make available to others at no charge it's just amazing so thank you thank you Thanks for listening to the Path 11 podcast today. I hope you all enjoyed this show. And if you haven't checked out our Patreon page, I'd like you to do so because we are going to start putting some content over there that is only for our Patreon subscribers. You can get content for as little as donating a dollar a month, and it could just be a one-time donation. We have other freebies over there that you can get depending upon how much you would like to donate. And again, it could be a one-time donation, or you can continue to keep your subscription on a monthly basis at that donation level, but I just put my MBT immersive experience, which was a four day, four day intensive meditation training in Tennessee with physicist Tom Campbell. I was listening to binaural beats, going to altered states of consciousness, having out of body experiences and life changing experiences that I was able to bring back uh, for myself, for my clients, for my friends that was just out of this world. So if you would like to listen to that, I'd like you to head on over to path11podcast.com. You're going to see an orange button that says Patreon. Become a Patreon today and you can have access to that podcast. And I would like to remind you to head on over to path11productions.com and check out the membership that we have for the Afterlife Awareness Conference. We have over 25 hours of footage with amazing speakers like William Buhlman, Thomas John, Terry Daniel, Suzanne Geisman, Suzanne Northrup, Linda Fitch, uh, Austin Wells, just a few people uh, to name off that were amazing. These workshops are just so valuable. So I think that you would really enjoy it. It's also a great thing to think about to maybe give the gift to somebody who is struggling with grief. If you are looking for resources, this is a great conference to send people to to check out. And thanks again for listening today.